the apostle writes on the basis, now this is on the basis of uh, the salvation that's been given to us in Christ, the, the glory that has been revealed to us in the gospel. Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Beloved of God the Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, it has been said that there is a distinct difference in the attitude of those who have served in various branches of the armed forces. I've kind of noticed that as I, um, well, back in the day when I was a reporter, I would spend a, a good bit of time with military folks. It seemed like they really had their pulse on the, uh, on the community, so I'd often... Uh, if I had a spare hour or so in the evening, I'd stop by the VFW. And it was interesting to see the different attitudes uh, among folks who served in different branches. Somebody who'd served in the Navy would say, yep, I served in the Navy, three years on a destroyer. You know, somebody in the Army would say, I was in the infantry, I was Army. And uh, you know, somebody that was, was in the Air Force, oh yeah, I was, I was a tech sergeant. You know, and they would tell about their time in the Air Force. But the Marines tended to be different. Almost invariably, they would say, I'm a Marine. Present tense. They have that built into their basic training. They foster this idea that their identity is bound up in the Marines. It's not a job they hold. It's not a thing they do. It's an identity they have obtained. Semper Fi, always faithful. That's something that they, they're... that's built into them. That whether in uniform or out, whether serving or retired, that that's who they are. Now folks, we as Christians need to learn from that. So often in this nation, in a nation that was built on a Christian heritage, that was founded in large part 
Forget what you hear in the public school systems. It wasn't founded merely by opportunists. A significant portion of the founding fathers of this nation established this land as a shining light on the hill where the church could be established and could live out the fullness of its calling openly, boldly, broadly. In a land like that, it's very easy for everyone to simply say, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. We're all Christians. And they act like it when they're in church, when they're in the pew, when they've got their tie on. But then you go into the rest of the world and you act like a chameleon. We go to church and we're Christians and we go to work and we act just like the guy next to us, cussing and swearing and talking about our exploits. And we get to the weekend and we act just like the people around us, living for the moment, living for the thrill. But God calls us to take that lesson from the Marines, that we are always, that we are bound up in our very identity. We are Christians. We are those who belong to the Lord. We are those who have been set apart and claimed by the Savior. From the moment that water falls upon our head, that's who we are. That's what we are. And if that is who and what we are, then that needs to affect everything about us, infusing it all with our calling as Christians. And that's what our text this morning speaks to us about. In the light of our identity, in the light of the reality of who we are in Christ, we have a unique calling. It's the calling as the holy ones of God to cultivate an earnest love, a love for God, a love for our neighbor. That is our calling. And so that is our theme. God calls us as His people as those who are Christians in all of life, at church, at home, at work, at wherever we are. We are called to cultivate an earnest love. And He shows us that, first by showing us why we must cultivate this earnest love, then by showing us how we go about learning to do that. And so the first thing we see here is that we're called to cultivate an earnest love that is required by our faith-driven holiness. That's our first point. This cultivation of earnest love is required by our faith-driven holiness. Look right at the heart of our text and you'll see the, the climax of our text, the main point. Verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's a command. You must love. It's not an option for the people of God. It's not a good suggestion. The calling to love lies right at the heart of who we are. Now, you might recall that the Greek language, if you've been sitting in Christian worship services for long, you've probably at some point heard that the Greek language has three words for love. Eros is the kind of love that joins together a husband and wife. It's that passionate, intimate love. Philia is brotherly love. It's the kind of love that causes us to embrace those near us, to show tenderness toward them. And then there's agape. Agape is selfless love. It's love that doesn't expect anything in return. It's agape that Christ showed to us in coming to live as the Holy One among sinful men. 
in coming to do everything that was necessary to restore us to God. That is the kind of love God showed to us, and that is the kind of love commanded here. Now recognize the Lord isn't commanding here a warm and fuzzy display of emotion. He's commanding love that has legs. Love that reaches out and helps those in need, that embraces those who grieve, that doesn't need words because its actions make it evident. Notice the qualification, love one another. God's people are called to love everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself, says the Lord. And and Jesus showed us in the parable of the Good Samaritan that your neighbor is whoever God puts in front of you. But we are to love with a unique intimacy and power those who are of us, our fellow believers, the Christians to whom we are joined by faith. Our love for them ought to be shown earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestly has the sense of expansiveness, right? We don't love timidly. We don't love tentatively. We love full throttle. Without any hesitation, without any holding back. From a pure heart. We don't do it just so people will think well of us. So people will will recognize us as Christians. No, we, we love because Christ first loved us. We love as a reflection of the perfect love that has been given to us. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the heart of what this passage is seeking to convey to us. And it first of all shows us why we are to love earnestly from a pure heart. And that's our holiness. God desires our holiness deeply. He's the one who orchestrated everything necessary in order to render us holy. Look at verse 20. Talking of Jesus, it says... He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. That word foreknown, it's not just talking about God's perception as though God was a really good guesser or or God thought maybe this might happen. No, this has an intentionality, a causation to it. God is the one who determined before time began, before Adam committed his first sin, knowing that Adam would sin, God determined that he would send his son at this time in this way for this purpose. He determined what Jesus would need to do, how he would need to act, how he would suffer, how he would die, also the power by which he would be resurrected. He determined all of that for the sake of the salvation of God's people, and then He revealed it all in these last times. That's when we live. We live in the the final age before the judgment and the renewal of all things. And at the very start of this age, God revealed His Son as our Savior, and now He's gathering together His people, revealing the consequence, the effect of what Jesus has done. All of it God did in order to render us Holy, that's God's goal in all of this, to purify us, to render us holy. From the very first moment that we embrace Jesus by faith, the Bible says we are holy through imputation. When when we trust in Jesus by faith, God imputes the holiness of Christ to us. That means that He looks on us and He counts us as being holy. As though we had never done any wrong, Lord's Day 23 tells us. 
as though we had been as perfectly righteous as Jesus was for us. He counts us holy not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us. And from that moment on, He's renewing us into holiness. We call that process sanctification. God begins turning us away from sin and turning us toward His character. And that process comes about through the God-given instrument of obedience. There are some who say, the gospel has nothing to do with obedience. That's a lie. The gospel is about what has been done for us, period, end of sentence, full stop. There is no command, there is no imperative to the gospel, they say. That's a lie. Jesus did absolutely everything necessary to save us, 100%. But then he commands us to believe. He commands us to have faith. Now, he's the one who's working that faith in us. We'd never do it apart from him. Right? In that sense, we're passive. But we still need to believe. We still need to understand. We still need to trust. We know that it's the Lord working that in us, but we're still doing it. And ever thereafter, He calls us to submit ourselves to our Savior. He did everything for us. He lived, He died, He rose again, He ascended to heaven, He's reigning over all the creation for our sake. The only thing we can do is respond with gratitude. And if our gratitude would be genuine, if we would show gratitude that's pleasing to the Lord, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. If our faith is real, we will begin obeying Him, rejecting the rebellion that would have killed us, striving after the holiness that pleases the Lord, embracing love earnestly and from a pure heart. The more we obey, the more holy we become. Again, remembering that God's the one working this in us. But the more we obey His commands, the more we follow after His ways, the more the holiness that is ours is manifested in us. That's why we're commanded to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because love stands right at the heart of holiness. What is holiness? We've talked about this recently. Kids, what is holiness? Holiness is on the one hand to avoid that which would defile you. Right? Sin defiles you. Makes you unacceptable to God. Baptism shows us the removal of that defilement so that we can be holy. And holiness is, is not only avoiding that which defiles, but it's also being completely devoted to God. Well, sin is the antithesis of love. Sin is a hatred for God, a hatred for our fellow man. It's putting myself first, no matter what it costs man, no matter what it does to God. He wants us to put that aside. God loved us. That's how he expressed his holiness to us. He loved us so much that he died for the sake of our sins, that he suffered the wrath of God so that we wouldn't need to. And now he calls us to so love him in response. 
that we love one another, that we reflect His love to each other. There, in showing that devotion to God, we embrace the holiness for which we were saved. We embrace the holiness for which we were created. A Marine is a Marine always. That's who he is, in uniform or out. Semper Fi always. Well, we're Christians always. We are holy always. That's who we are, whether in church or out, whether among our family or among our friends or among our co-workers. We are holy. And so we're called to live as those who are holy. We're called to live in a way that people look at us and they either say, he must be a Christian. She must be devoted to the Lord. We can see the holiness. Or if they're not Christians, that they look on us and they say, there's something wrong with that person. They're not normal. They don't fit in. And we don't. Because this world is devoted to defilement. This world is devoted to unholiness. And as those who are holy, our behavior should stand out in stark contrast. Your identity is that of one who is holy. Therefore, we must reveal that holiness by loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. The question is, how do we do that? What's that look like? How does it act? In order to learn that, we need the wisdom of God. And His wisdom is not a hidden witness, available only to a select few or, or something that's a mystery to us normal people. No, God has revealed the way that we should pursue the holiness of of earnest love. And that's our second point. Our calling to reveal our holiness, our calling to manifest the love of God is revealed by God's life-giving Word. Our passage reminds us that God's Word is essential, absolutely essential to the Christian life. In our age, many churches have sought out innovative ways to reach God's people. Now, their desire is commendable. They want to reach people with the gospel. They want people to know the joy of knowing the Lord. That's great. But their method is absolutely backward. They go and they they talk to unbelievers about how they want to be approached with the gospel. The problem is unbelievers don't want to be approached with the gospel. Right? They're unbelievers. They're, they're reinventing a wheel that doesn't need to be reinvented when they try all of these new programs and plans. And No, you don't need that. God has told us how the gospel must go forth. God has told us how men shall be saved. It is through the proclamation of God's word. In every age, those whom God would have saved are saved in the same way. They are saved by hearing the Word of God. They are saved when God causes the Word to be preached to them, to be carefully explained to them, and then God by His Holy Spirit softens their hearts, opens their eyes, allows them to see the misery of their sin, but also the glory of Christ, imparts to them faith by which they take hold of what they are told in the Gospel, and leads them to trust in Christ which changes everything for them. That method of drawing people was designed by God Himself. 1 Corinthians 15 says it is the gospel by which we are saved. 1 Corinthians 1 says it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The word of God by which we come to Christ is powerful. Our text calls it the living and abiding word of God. It is living in that it comes to us and it creates that which it commands. It commands us to have faith and it fosters that faith within us. It commands us to be holy and it draws us into that holiness for which we were made. It is the living and abiding word. This word doesn't change. Society changes. The hearts of men change. Families change. But that word doesn't change. Woe to us if we seek to accommodate it to the ever-changing world in which we live. No, that word and the truth that it encompasses never, ever alters. It is always faithful, always true. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Because his word was given to accomplish a task which it must fulfill. And that task is gathering together a people for the Lord and transforming them to reflect the holiness of the Lord. And so that word which gives us life also transforms us that we might reveal the holiness of Christ to the world. If you would learn to fulfill this command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, then you must spend time in that living and abiding word which reveals what that looks like. You must spend time reading God's word until you know it intimately. Young people, you must study that word. Don't just read the syllables, that's a good start. But ask what those syllables mean. Ask what those words mean in context. Take the time to open up a study Bible and to look at at what it declares about the setting and the original meaning of the text to its original hearers and how that imports into our own age. Learn from the people who've studied God's Word longer. Study the Bible with your parents, with your grandparents, with older saints in the church. Pray for the guidance and the wisdom that you need to not only understand the Word, but to apply it to life. And as you spend time reading and learning from God's Word, God will use that Word to transform you. Love one another earnestly from pure hearts. If we study God's Word concerning what that means, it will be absolutely transformational. 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so we learn from God's word that this love to which we're called, it's got to be a love that acts. It's got to be a love that concretely applies itself. Kids, it's great to tell your mom you love her. It's good. You should do that. If you really want her to see that you love her, when she tells you to do a chore, go do it immediately. Don't put it off. Don't do it half-heartedly. Do it all the way. Young people, 
You say to your friends, or you imply at least to them, that you love them. But if you really love them, then you need to be there for them. When they need a shoulder to cry on, when they need someone to help them out, when they need a ride, you need to be there for them. Concretely, physically. That's what, that's what the Bible tells us about this earnest love to which we're called. Or think about Jesus in John 13. He washes the feet of his disciples. And then he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How did Jesus love the disciples? He washed their feet. He did the lowliest task to show them his love. That's what we ought to be willing to do. You want to show true love, you go serve in the nursery and willingly change the diapers of babies. You want to show true and living love. You see there's a mess on the floor, you go grab a mop and you you clean it up without asking for thanks, without seeking any attention. You want to show a true and living love, you go out of your way to sit with an elderly person in the nursing home, a person who has dementia and probably won't remember your visit later, but it'll give them joy in the moment. It'll show them the love of God in that moment. That's the kind of love Jesus showed to us. That's the earnest love He calls us to show one another. Or think of Romans 12. Romans 12 is absolutely jam-packed with instruction on how we are to To love one another earnestly from a pure heart. For instance, well, verse 9, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You want to love one another, you, you raise up your brother at your own expense. You bring your sister praise and honor rather than yourself. Or verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Would you show love that is Christ-like, love that is pleasing to God? Show hospitality and contribute to the needs of the saints. Let there never be want or need among the people of God. You see somebody who needs help, you help them. You need somebody or see somebody who needs food, you feed them. You see a new visitor who, who looks a little lost. You sit with them and explain the worship service to them if they need it. You see that person who's a little bit strange, nobody wants to be with them. You go spend time with them rather than with all the cool people. Or think about verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's hard. Those difficult argumentative people. You just want to leave them alone. Maybe you, you feel like telling others, oh, you hear what he did this time? But God says, no, bless them, love them, care for them. In fact, in fact, he says, when they curse you, when they harm you, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That means you go to that argumentative, hard-to-love person and you seek reconciliation. And you love them. 
and you care for them and you speak tenderly to them, even though you know that they might use it against you. They might repay you with hatred for your love. But you see, that's what Jesus did for us while we were still his enemies. He loved us. While we were still hating him and hateful toward him, he died for us. It's in that light that the Lord commands us, love one another earnestly from a pure heart because you are holy in Christ. As the word commands you, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is not a prosperity gospel. There is no promise here that if you do this, then this will be done to you. There's no assurance. If you reach out to that troublesome person, well, he's going to turn and just become all sunshine and roses. He's going to be such a pleasant person now. No, he might still be ornery and hard to get along with. There's no promise here that if you weep with those who weep, when you weep, someone will weep with you. Sometimes you'll weep alone. But here's the promise. If you love one another earnestly from a pure heart, God will be glorified in you. Because it will be evident that you are holy in Christ. That's what you were made to do. That's your identity. That's Sequoia's identity. She doesn't know it yet. But she's been given the sign and seal of God's promise. And so it's our calling to bring her up. To know that that she has this glorious, wonderful, amazing calling to show the world the holiness of God by the love that she shows. The only way she'll know that. The only way she'll learn that. Not if we go up and tell her, hey, you need to love. You need to be holy. That won't do it. The only way she'll learn that is if she sees in us the holiness of Christ-like love. If she sees in us a devotion to God's word so that we can learn what it means to live as God's holy people. The only way she'll learn that is if we model it before her. But if we do, by God's mercy, she will. Beloved, it is our greatest privilege to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. And as those who are holy, God calls us to cultivate an earnest love. It is essential that we do because that's what we are. And God's given us every instruction we need for every circumstance. If only we will open it and learn. May God give us a passion for doing so. And may God be glorified through us. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we so desperately need your passion for holiness. You know us. You know how quickly we'll put it on autopilot. We'll just go the way that's easy. And there's nothing easy about loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. But you're the one who's given us the pure heart. You're the one who's made us holy in Christ and called us to holiness because of Christ. And so we pray that you would equip us with not just an ability but a a desire, an earnest longing to be holy as you are holy. 
Open our eyes to opportunities to show love and give us a passion for studying your word which teaches us about love. And in all of this, may you delight in your people and be glorified through our attempts to reflect your holy and loving character. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let us continue asking God to give us that which has been commanded of us as we stand and sing together number 449, Fill Thou My Life. We'll we'll sing all the stanzas of number 449. Mm -hmm. 